my name is Sio Al Norberg and today is September 6th of 2018 and I'm here with Miguel Mora at the Pedagat Library for the R Street Source Stories Project at the Brooklyn Public Library. So what's your Brooklyn story? My Brooklyn story, born and raised, uh, Cumberland Hospital, uh, which I believe no longer exists. I grew up in Bed-Stuy for uh, 10 years. My parents are from Puerto Rico, born and raised there. They came here at the end of the 50s, 58, 59. I was born in 60. Uh, there's four, four of us, four brothers. And we grew up in Bed-Stuy uh, back in the 60s. Um, we were in classes where we were basically one or two people that were not African-American or not Caribbean-American. We were one or two Puerto Ricans. And we were there for the most part for about 10 years. Then we moved over to Flatbush. And uh, that neighborhood was more diversified, uh, more Caribbean people. Um, again, just a very diversified neighborhood. We, we were there for five years, and then we moved to the projects of Coney Island. And Coney Island was the neighborhood that we grew up, meaning that we were, my brothers and I were uh, basically teenagers. We'd go to high school, and we lived in that neighborhood uh, for at least 25 years between uh, the my brothers and myself, my parents actually are there over 40 years. They're still there. And we had the opportunity of going to school in the neighborhood with two of my brothers. I went to uh, Brooklyn Tech as a high school student and participated in neighborhood sports. And that was a key thing for us. Uh, living and growing up in Coney Island is that we, we participated in sports, again, locally, and we had the boardwalk, we had the beach, we, we had uh, friends that we hung out with and played a variety of sports, and we had fun. But again, it was the projects. So, you know, nobody had a lot of money, and nobody, you know, was, you know, rich or anything like that, not, you know, far from it. And we, we just had an opportunity just to enjoy each other and just play a variety of sports, baseball, softball, basketball, football, running around, jogging on the boardwalk, going swimming. And that's, we were kids. We were teenagers, so we knew about having fun. It's not to say that there weren't some other elements there in, in Coney Island. You know, drugs were part of people's lives, drinking was part of people's lives, smoking was part of people's lives, and everyone had their own variety of what they would do. Um, one of the things that I can be proud of saying is that just because I lived in the projects didn't mean that we had to partake in these areas. Um, I, I tell my kids, I say I was too poor to smoke, I was too poor to do drugs. I was too poor to drink alcohol. Um, when I worked, and I worked at Nathan's Famous for a number of years, started in the kitchen, 
Eventually, after six, seven years, I became a manager. So it was a great job to have. My brothers and I would always talk about how much fun we had working there. We're all in our 50s today, and the conversation can come up about working at Nathan's, and we all have fond, fun memories. Four, four of us worked there. My mother worked there at one time. Again, it was a convenient job. It was local. Uh, to walk to work, walk to, on a boardwalk on the way home. You had the rides there. You had free food. Nathan's hot dogs, of course, hamburgers, tremendous french fries. So it was a uh, really good opportunity. You learn, you work hard. Um, we worked uh, through high school, we worked there through college. Some After some of us had uh, had it as part-time jobs after we had full-time jobs. One of my brothers has uh, made the claim that he helped, that working at Nathan's helped pay for his college education. And he, he went to two, uh, two schools that were a little on the expensive side, but as he worked at Nathan's, he was able to pay for his college education. We had the neighborhood... Uh, guys, we used to play against blocks, different blocks with each other, softball, basketball, football. Um, we had gangs uh, that actually wore colors. People remember the movie Warriors? Well, we had our own Warriors, okay? Very famous movie. But we, we had you know several gangs out there that they walked around with the colors and the hats and motorcycle boots and, and, the, uh, and the vest. And they were gangs that, you know, did, you know, sell drugs. They did, you know, other things. And uh, we actually played sports against them. And people uh, thought we were crazy to play against them. We were one of the few uh, buildings, project buildings, that actually played against them. And people thought we were crazy. They played tough. They played rough. They played a little dirty. But... Um, we played them with skill, and we won quite a bit, but they were not uh, sour losers. They were good losers. They respected the fact that we didn't uh, bow down to them because they were gang members, because they were rough. No, we played. We won. We beat them. They were good sports. They were good sports. A lot of people, you know, again, we would hear about it and say, yo, you guys played those guys? Aren't you afraid? I'm like, no, nah, they, they just want to play ball. They want to play basketball. They want to play softball. Hey, everybody challenges us because we were one of the better teams. And we had fun, and they appreciated that. We, again, you know, over the years, you know, the neighborhood changed. Um, one of the drastic changes was uh, the blackout of 1977. So uh, Mermaid Avenue, Coney Island, went up in flames. Looting was uh, a big factor. Uh, some of the businesses, uh, people for whatever reason, uh, set fire to some of the businesses. And after the blackout, and after some of the fires, more businesses caught fire. And we believe, a lot of people that lived in the neighborhood, the owners 
set the uh, buildings on fire because of insurance. They didn't want to reopen. They didn't want to reinvest. So a lot of the businesses never came back. Then the next phenomenon was that the small houses were burned. And again, we who lived in Coney Island for years believed that the landlords, the owners, set fire to their properties. And you could see over the years how devastated blocks upon blocks upon blocks were just totally destroyed because of fire and, and just people just didn't want to be bothered with, you know, the tenants and neighborhoods. Um, but Coney Island has come back over the years. Organizations have invested in Coney Island, invested in the, the businesses, um, still have a ways to go, but it has turned around. And it's still today coming back. A lot more businesses are coming back. Some of them are thriving. Conan Rides are thriving. Uh, a lot more restaurants are coming back. And speaking of restaurants, again, my brothers and I worked at Nathan's for many years. We, four, four of us, four men, four brothers, we liked the restaurant business. We saw in Florida, we were in Florida, and we saw a Subway restaurant. And I don't... I don't think there were too many of them left or too many of them open here at the time. And we saw that, we looked into it, and we opened a Subway restaurant. It actually took a year to put it in place from the time that we saw it and thought that it would be something that we could do. Again, we were trained in restaurants for so many years. It was a piece of cake to actually run it, create the sandwiches, but um, we had it for two years, and uh, the volume of business wasn't what we thought it would be, should be, could have been, and we had to close. Um, but we, we, we ran it efficiently. Um, we were inspected, and each time the inspections we passed with flying colors, subway um, inspector was always happy, always uh, appreciative of how we were professional, how we were, uh, the cleanliness, how we were uh, promoting it in the community, uh, in the neighborhood. But again, it wasn't enough because, again, you need a volume of business. Coney Island, for six months out of the year, very busy. The other six months, dead. Dead. So basically, whatever money you make in six months has to hold you over for the next six months. And we didn't have that luxury. We didn't have that luxury. We needed business all year round. Um, again, Nathan's does such a business based on our experience. They do such a business during the summer that they can pay to be open all year round. And we didn't have that luxury. But we stayed uh, for two years. Um, I worked right there across the street. I worked for the New York City Transit Authority. I did 29 years there, and I worked right across the street from the subway restaurant. So I, I went to work in the morning, finished eight, my eight hours, went to a shift at the Transit Authority, uh, did eight hours there, come back to the restaurant, check on it, make sure everything was okay, and uh, busy for two years. 
100 hours a week, easy. 100 hours a week, easy. And I lived out there, um, like I said, for a good part of 25 years. Um, I was fortunate one time to have one of the uh, Democratic leaders of the Coney Island community approach me. Um, was aware of, you know, of me being in the community. Uh, I reached out to the community. I advertised, I promoted in the community. I donated to the community. So he reached out to me one year about uh, a city council position for Coney Island Seagate. And I was very flattered by that. Uh, I, you know, had my reasons for not doing it, but um, it was just very flattering to be approached um, because, again, I was a Coney Island person for so many years. Um, actually, uh, another time, uh, a member of uh, Stefan Marbury's team approached me about doing a press conference in the restaurant. Stefan Marbury and the Marbury family were prominent basketball players uh, out of Coney Island, and uh, he approached me with that opportunity, um, but he eventually went to Junior's downtown Brooklyn. But I appreciated, you know, the offer. I thought it was just, you know, really just kind of kind of cool to even be considered. But of course, Junior's, yeah, I didn't fault him for going there. I mean, of course, he could have went to Nathan's, but he didn't have, there's no real space to actually do uh, an enclosure there. But it was just cool. Um, one time, um, Spike Lee did a movie um, with Denzel Washington and used the space above the restaurant uh, as a uh, as a as their station for setting up for scenes and setting up because it was right there on the block and uh, the crew would come in to the restaurant even though they had their bus of uh, catering bus they would come in and patronize and it was pretty cool didn't get to see Denzel didn't get to see Spike Lee but it was just cool just to be in that atmosphere and the movie came out uh, she got game he got game and uh, it was great Ray Allen again we didn't see any of these people this was just a staging area just to set up for doing shots in the community. Um, one day, while they were doing their shoot, um, I was at work, and a couple of the um, people that were filming were walking around, and they had cameras, and they were looking to set up a shot. They were looking for a shot that a train would come around a curve and pull into Coney Island. And they kept looking, and I, and I, I approached them, you know, because I knew they were doing a movie. And uh, I, I said a really good shot would be from that dispatcher's office there. And I said, look, let me go talk to the dispatcher and see if it will be okay. So I went, talked to the dispatcher, and they were like, yeah, sure, no problem, let them come in. So I took the crew in. They, they, they got in the spot. A train was coming, and they were like, this is the greatest spot for this shot that we want. I actually don't remember if it's in the movie or not, but they were excited. Uh, they set up for the next shot, because it's only a couple of minutes between uh, trains coming in, and they got the shot. And again, I, I, it's been so many years, I got... I probably remember that, that it's probably in the movie because it's a great shot. It was at night, everything's lit up, you know. And I, 
I helped him with the shot. So here I am helping him with a shot. They come into the restaurant, and all this activity is going on um, there in, in Coney Island. Uh, one of my best days working, living in Coney Island was at the restaurant, Subway restaurant. A group came in, about a dozen people. Um, it was basically like October, so a lot of, th- most of the things weren't open. But they came, they were tourists, you know, they came from Midwest somewhere. They came in, they were ordering, they asked questions about the neighborhood, Coney Island. And, you know, I, because I lived and worked there for so many years, I had opportunity to speak to them at length, helped them with information, helped them just telling them where to go, even though there wasn't much to be open. But they knew after a few minutes where they can walk and just see things. Later on in the day, I went to work across the street at the train station. And I'm at the top of the stairs, and this whole group is coming up the stairs. And I realized it's that same group of people. And they come up the stairs, and they ask, it says, sir, we, we want to go to 42nd Street. And I took them to the map. And as I was taken to the map, somebody in the group says out loud, hey, didn't you work at the Subway restaurant across the street? And I said, yeah. And they were all laughing and wowing, like, you work for the Subway and you own a Subway? They're like, how cool is that? And once again, I went through all this information about 42nd Street, what to see, where to go. And they were like, wow, thank you, guy. You helped us so much today. This was awesome. And it was awesome for me to be able to help. It was awesome for me to be able to provide them information about Coney Island, provide them with food, provide them with a a, a clean train that they got on. Uh, That was my job. I cleaned trains. So they got into a clean car. They went to 42nd Street. Of course, I hadn't seen them since then. But I just knew in my heart that I did you know, something for a dozen people, you know, even though I've helped, you know, quite a few people over the years at the train station, people ask questions all the time. So uh, 25 years, Coney Island, my parents still out there, uh, still have good memories of the neighborhood, um, met my first wife, met my second wife in Coney Island. So something good, something bad, you know, came out of it, you know, so, um, the political thing was interesting at the time. Uh, again, of course, I had my reasons uh, not to participate. But uh, that's, you know, that's my story from Coney Island, you know, 25 years, uh, working with the Transit Authority right there. I walked to work many days, you know, didn't have to travel much, even though I have a free pass. Uh, that was also pretty cool in terms of, you know, travel back and forth. Now I live in Canarsie, um, and I work at the L train in Canarsie. I did that for 16 years. I'm a local guy. I'm not into traveling too far uh, for a job that I can do, you know, just minutes away. And I did that for 16 years there, so in total, uh, 29 years. And here I am in in Canarsie, and I... uh, volunteer at two of the libraries in Canarsie, in my neighborhood. I volunteer to help people 
all become citizens because um, I believe that that's uh, a vital, necessary service in these times in our nation, in the history of the United States. And I look forward to helping as many people as I can to become citizens. Uh, I've been blessed to be able to help 26 people uh, two last month. And it's just been you know, a fantastic opportunity that this library has given me and allowed me to share and give back some, some of my knowledge, some of my experience. And it's been you know, pretty good opportunity so far. I moved to Canarsie in 2000. In uh, 2000. So I've been here about 18 years. And uh, in 2000, the month that I moved to Canarsie, I started working at Rockaway Parkway. So it was a planned plan to make the move to work and live. So in 2000, we moved out here wife and my daughter and the following year we had twins 2001 so we were just blessed in a very short period of time have Canarsie changed much over the years it has it has um, Canarsie went through what's called a white flight scenario and in real estate Actually, it's a terminology that real estate people use in where they churn and turn over the housing in a neighborhood based on race. And what that is, is that a neighborhood that is predominantly white and has a percentage a small percentage of people of color move into the neighborhood. When it gets to so-called 10% of people of color, the real estate people now churn and stir the pot and they go around speaking to homeowners. People of color are moving into your neighborhood. People of color are moving into the neighborhood fear of property values going down they're going to bring in elements they're going to do this in property values and crime and all these things start to be propaganda it's propaganda that the real estate people do and the turnover begins so it goes from 10 percent people of color Canarsie now is about 90% people of color. Okay, and that happened within 10 years. Within 10 years. And what, what I found the next five or six years, and of course we are, a lot of us are familiar with the real estate bust that occurred, people were buying homes that should not have been buying homes. Banks were giving loans that should not have been giving loans foreclosures, bankruptcies, short sales, all of these things occurred. Every block, every block you went to, every turn you made, there was a house for sale. Didn't matter where. 
any block in Canarsie that you turned, there was a house for sale. So you're talking about a lot of people, a lot of people. Then you had some houses that were just eventually abandoned because people just could not and should not have been in those homes, purchased those homes. And the predatory lending that went on in Canarsie and, of course, the nation as a whole. Of course, I'm speaking about my personal view of what I've seen, but we know in the United States that it was a national crisis. Okay, but predatory lending was ongoing everywhere. And Canarsie was not immune, not immune whatsoever. So, but white flight was a very specific, very specific targeting method used where it turned over the neighborhood. And, and, and I, I am very pleased to say that the so-called fear factor was property values would go up, down. Today, property values in Canars have increased more than anything else. The owners, the people of color, have taken on the responsibility of improving their properties, improving their neighborhoods with businesses and other interests into the community. So now you have more businesses coming into the neighborhood, improving the neighborhood, providing services, providing products, okay, and increasing the value. So the fear that was initially portrayed might have had a slight downturn, but the eventuality was that the property values were improved, have gone up, and you have more people coming into the neighborhoods, more affordable housing, or and some less affordable housing. But the improvement is there. It's visible. You walk the neighborhood, you ride the neighborhood, whatever way you want to do it, you can see the improvements. People have invested in their properties, invested in their homes to improve the look, and it's been proved there that real estate people, they made money because, of course, they got commission. But the fear factor that they were portraying did not substantiate over time. It was just lies, just to create a financial windfall for themselves. Okay. You have four daughters. Right? I have four <laughs> beautiful daughters. It's the same as uh, you. You had three brothers. You were also four. If my father had four men, I have four women. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So, uh, what advice uh, do you give to like new generations here in Brooklyn? That. That's a that's a good question. That's a good question. Advice for them. First of all, you got to be positive. People that come to the United States, and that's the, that's the first thing. Again, because we're all immigrants. One of the things I teach first and foremost, we are all immigrants. We all have come from somewhere else. And if you come to the United States, you come to New York State, you come to New York City, you come to Brooklyn, 
what you are looking for is the American dream, but you are also looking for opportunity. And I teach that every day. You're looking for better job opportunities, better housing opportunities, better education opportunities. Also, you are looking for a safer environment for yourself and for your family. Now, when I say safer, I can only say safer based upon where you came from. Now, reading the newspapers, hearing the news, is the United States the safest place in the world? Is New York State the safest place? New York City the safest place? Brooklyn? Maybe not. But is it safer than where you came from? Were you persecuted where you came from? Were you abused where you came from? Were you intimidated where you came from? Okay? And when you come to the United States, you want the opportunity to feel safer. Feel safer. So you have the opportunity. You seek them out. You seek out opportunities. They're out there, whether you're, whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you are a highly skilled individual, whether you're a highly educated individual, you seek them out. Information is available. We have libraries. You have the internet. You have um, business services here in, in New York City where, again, you have the opportunity to sit in, through seminars or sit with advisors. Um, you have to be diligent in seeking. No one is going to give you anything. No one's going to hand you anything. You seek it out. You may get a handout after you have seeked the information, after you have seeked an opportunity, and you might get something in return. Those are few and far between. Few and far between. But as you seek out information, you have people in your community. You can find these community uh, organizations, community outreach programs. Seek them out. Okay? The internet gives you that opportunity. The library gives you that opportunity. Take advantage of them and Get that resource. Use the resources. Use the resources. And that's one of the things that the United States gives you is opportunity. Okay? Land of opportunity is the phrase that people talk about. And again, it is your effort. It is your effort. Your diligence. Okay? Sitting around expecting someone to hand you something, give you something, that's not realistic on any level, for anyone. But if you seek it out and you ask questions and you go to different community outreach programs, it benefits you. You will get some benefit from it. Someone, you might be lucky or blessed that someone just is willing to just help you out. It happens. It doesn't happen all the time. But if you put yourself in a positive light, positive light, don't go in with a negative attitude. Don't go in, in, a, in with an entitlement mentality. Don't go in with a woe is me mentality. I say, hey, I'm willing to work. I get up every day. 
looking for something to do, looking for an opportunity. I have this skill set. Go back to school. There are opportunities of going back to school everywhere in this city. Whether it's GED, whether it's high school, whether it's community college, there are many opportunities to learn. Many legitimate opportunities to learn. There are some illegitimate. Again, it's about research. It's about asking questions. It's about reaching out. Okay, reaching out. There are government programs. There are community programs. There are political programs where you can go speak to politicians. You take advantage of all the resources and opportunities that can be available to you. But if you are sitting around expecting to get a handout, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. To few and far between, again, you know, people have you know, disabilities, people have learning disabilities, people have handicaps. Yes, and there are services for you also. There are services for you. But if you're able-bodied, there are opportunities for you to thrive, survive, and move forward. Is there anything else you'd like to say about Brooklyn before we Brooklyn is the center of the universe as far as I'm concerned. Um, born and raised here. I uh, haven't given much thought to moving out of uh, Brooklyn. I'm retired, so I'm not you know, bound to stay here. Um, I haven't done much travel. Um, historically, there is so much here, uh, so much that um, you, you can, every week you can go somewhere different here in Brooklyn, in New York, and you have to take advantage of that. It's, it's one of the saddest things for me is to hear a New Yorker say that they've never been somewhere here. And it's sad because there's so much here that 50 million people come here every year. We have 8 million people that live here. If you include Long Island, you're talking about 10 million people that travel to New York, Long Island on a daily basis. And then you add another million people on top of that. Again, let's say every week you got another million people coming in here, 50 million a year. Let's just say a million per week. It's a lot of people coming to this place, being here, and you need to take advantage of what's here. What's here in Brooklyn? What's here in New York City? Okay? You know, my goal is to continue to just see and experience more of Brooklyn, more of New York City, whether it's with my family or on my own. Just venture out, you know, see something different, do something different, you know, and just appreciate what we have instead of thinking, oh, I want to get out of here, I want to get out of here. You know, you're in Brooklyn. The center of the universe is right here, you know. Thank you so much for being a part of the United States Systems Thank you. You're welcome.